Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey, podcast listener. Do you love talking about movies, music, TV, comics, and games? Then you should be listening to The Great Pop Culture Debate, back in bigger than ever for season nine. This season, the panelists discuss the best James Bond film, the best Elton John single, the best Nickelodeon original series, the best Batman villain, and so much more. Find the show wherever you listen to podcasts or head to greatpopculturedebate.com. More than 100 topics are already available. Subscribe today. Thanks to funding from the British Podcast Awards Fund and Welcome Trust, I'm embarking on a series of conversations under the banner Theory in the Flesh. I borrow the term Theory in the Flesh from and with gratitude to our feminist and QTPOC elders to draw attention to the health inequalities and disparities experienced by queer black people in the UK. The conversations convened under Theory in the Flesh explore sexual racism, masculinity, black women in medical research and therapy, and should hopefully, if I've done my job, provide a window into just some of the many considerations we have to make as queer black people in the UK about our health. I hope you all enjoy these conversations. Our livelihood, our health, our thriving is of the utmost importance to me, and a great deal of care, thought, and research has gone into these conversations. If you have a few minutes, I would be so grateful if you could show your support for Busy Being Black by filling out a short, anonymous and data protected survey about theory in the flesh you can do that at podcastviews.com we would talk about these inequities that exist but we didn't like say explicitly like why and so under my leadership i was like we need to say racism in this document we need to say transphobia we need to say homophobia we need to explicitly state what are the systems of oppression the systems of power and privilege that are leading to these inequities that we are asking these community-based organizations to intervene on and to mitigate. For the sixth and final episode of Theory in the Flesh, I'm in conversation with Dr. Oni Blackstock, the Assistant Commissioner for the Bureau of HIV at the New York City Department of Health. In 2018, doctors diagnosed 1,917 people with HIV, a 67% decline from the number of diagnoses in 2001. I reached out to Dr. Blackstock to understand what precipitated such a historic drop in new HIV diagnoses and how she and her colleagues at the Bureau have been able to intervene so successfully in the lives of those disproportionately impacted by HIV. We discuss the years-long work of building trust among marginalized communities, the many ways the city addresses and accounts for structural inequalities and disparities in HIV outreach, and the parallels between COVID-19 and the ongoing HIV epidemic. Dr. Blackstock makes clear that it takes large teams working at the city level, substantive funding at all levels of government, and consistent engagement with and funding of grassroots and community organizations to deliver health interventions that work for all. I'm Josh Rivers, and I'm busy being Black with Dr. Oni Blackstock. Dr. Blackstock, I am so thrilled to have you here on Busy Being Black, and I'm really honored that you've made space and time for this conversation in the current climate. Um, so thank you so much for being here. 
thank you so much for having me. I'm really thrilled. I um, definitely wanted to be on and made sure that I was able to like find some time so that we could speak. Um, in the course of my research, I was really pleased to find out that um, you and your twin sister Uche and your mother, uh, your late mother, uh, Dr. Dale Gloria Blackstock, you're all the first black mother-daughter legacy from Harvard Medical School. Yes, yes. So, yeah, it's pretty amazing to be part of um, history. So, you know, my mother was um, born in, in Brooklyn. She was raised by a single mother, um, along with her five other siblings, they were raised in poverty on what we call welfare here, public assistance. Um, she didn't have a lot of support the way my sister and I did growing up, um, but she was very self-disciplined and she ended up having a mentor in college. She went to Brooklyn College, one of the city universities, um, a mentor who encouraged her and a number of other um, black students to really pursue their dreams and consider applying to medical school, which is what she did. And she went to Harvard Medical School where she felt like a fish out of water. Mm. Many of her classmates, their parents were professors at Harvard Medical School. So she, she was completely um, experiencing a lot of culture shock. Um, and then after Harvard Medical School, she came back to New York City, where um, she spent all of her career, pretty much most of it in central Brooklyn as a kidney doctor and doing a lot of community health work um, focused on Black people, Black people's health, you know, issue, high blood pressure and the disproportionate impact of kidney disease on Black people. Um, so my sister and I, you know, we saw that, you know, throughout our childhood, we saw the joy that she derived from this work. We saw the way in which medicine intersected with like activism and advocacy um, and community service. And so that um, was really important um, for us to really continue that legacy um, for her. Her mom died actually when we were in college. Um, she had a very rare form of leukemia. Um, and you know, after she died, um, we've actually found this letter that this note that she left for us under her mattress. And in it, she, she asked us to take care of our dad, to take care of each other. And then she said, please go on to medical school too. So, um, which we did. So I feel like we made her happy. Um, but I think what we're doing is like, we're probably, we're trying to pave our own roads. Like to, in the, you know, medicine is sort of like the entry point, but then sort of using that to then as leverage um, to do other types of work. And so how did you find your own path, right? Because I think that there's um, those of us who come from, you know, my, my grandfather had his own church and marched with Martin Luther King. My uncle was a NFL player for the Denver Broncos. You know, those of us who come from families that really believe in legacy building, we can sometimes find it difficult to carve our own path, right? And, right. and feel that pressure to do it. How did you find your particular passion within medicine? So... It's a good question. I, I should also just first say, like, I think sometimes we have these like families where they're like legacies, like you'll hear, you hear about like, this is the fourth generation pharmacist or the fourth generation store mm -hmm. owner. So I do think sometimes like, you know, we can't help but be sort of influenced by our surroundings. Um, and just to say that maybe if I had to do it all over again, might do some things differently, just to say oh, that. Interesting. Um, and, and just to say, I'm still figuring out what I want to do. So I, 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 found medicine attractive because it's really, um, especially internal medicine, which is what I practice in HIV. It's like very cerebral. We can like sit down and think about things and hypothesize and all of that, um, which I really love. It's like really exciting. Um, but clinical care is like really tough here um, in the United States. So right, you're like sometimes limited to 
15 minutes with a patient and by the time you say like, hi, how are you doing? It's like your 15 minutes is up. So to provide the type of care that I wanted to provide to my patients who are you know, mainly black and brown patients um, who are dealing with you know, all the different stresses of being black and brown in the society, 15 minutes is like not enough. And, you know, and I'm seeing my patients for 1%, you know, 0.11% of the, the time that they're out in the world. Um, and I'm not able to you know, control those other you know, social determinants of health that are impacting their own health. Yeah, so, so just to say there have been challenges, you know, in terms of my own experience as practicing as a clinician. Um, I did do my training in the in the Bronx, um, and my clinic was in the South Bronx, and in a program um, at Montefiore Medical Center called the Primary Care Social Medicine Program. It's a really unique program where we really understand the social context of our patients and how that informs health behaviors and health choices. So, you know, the the dominant culture here in the United States is really about the end of, is really focused on the individual and individual behavior. So when people have, if someone has a poor health outcome, it's because they made a bad choice, right? Mm. Um, but the, the training that I received was really about how these larger structures, you know, influence and impact people's health. And so I was very, um, felt very privileged and uh, fortunate to have that training. Um, and so that led me to then do um, an HIV fellowship at Harlem Hospital. Harlem Hospital was really has been like the epicenter of the HIV epidemic in the United States. HIV epidemic epicenter has now moved to the South, but mm -hmm. um, in the early days, really at the epicenter and really with high, high rates still today. Um, so that was really wonderful. Should also say that that was the same place where my mom did her own her medical training in the late 70s. So it's really nice to go back and there were some of her colleagues still working there um, who, who knew her and um, who I was able to meet well, during my time there. Um, and then I, while I was there, I realized like I had all these like questions about, um, for instance, how does trust in one's doctor inform their ability to person's ability to take their medications? Um, and so I realized I needed research skills. <laughs> so then I ended up right. going to Yale School of Medicine to get a master's in health services research because I wanted to have the tools, ask questions. And then for like 10 years, I was doing um, clinical research um, really at the intersection of uh, uh, behavioral and biomedical research, meaning that um, looking at, you know, what are the factors that affect people's ability to take their HIV medication or their PrEP, you know, pre-exposure prophylaxis, the once-a-day pill to prevent HIV, and how can we provide interventions to support people? So fast forward, I know I'm, I'm talking, you can and totally interrupt me. Um, no, please. I was no, doing all of that, <laughs> I was doing all of that, applying to the National Institutes of Health the Centers for Disease Control for Grants, and really enjoyed that work and being able to develop like foundational work, for instance, around you know developing interventions for getting PrEP to cisgender and transgender women involved in sex work. Like that's the type of work that really fueled me. Um, but it was really hard to get funding a lot of times. Um, and we've since learned that um, it's really hard to get funding for like disparities research. Um, the National Institute of Health did a, released um, a study recently, and it wasn't even my own imagination that, you know, black researchers tend to get funded less often because the work that we do is looking at like issues around community health and health inequities. And that's just, that's less likely to be funded because the people who are doing the applications have a different lens. Um, so two years ago, two and a half years ago, I got an email from a colleague from, on Facebook, she said, Oni, this position at the New York City Department of Health 
has opened up where you're gonna you would lead the city's response to the HIV epidemic, you should really consider applying for it. And I was like, no, it should be this type of person. I don't have like the expertise, like, no, no, no. And she was like, they need someone like you in this position, you need to apply. And I was dealing with a lot of imposter syndrome issues I think many of us deal with. Um, but I applied and I got the job and I've been in the position for two and a half years and there have been lots of really exciting aspects of it. There have been some challenging aspects of it. Um, but it's really great to be able to lead and to put equity first in terms of the work that we're doing ending the HIV epidemic here in New York City. I'm thinking about a conversation that I had with Katie and Pau, who is a professor on one of the on the Black Studies course at the University of Birmingham. So it's the first Black Studies degree in the UK. And we had a conversation about embodied experiences, mm -hmm. how her experience as a queer Black woman mm -hmm. um, becomes a teachable thing in, in the classroom. And so I'm, I guess I'm thinking that over the course of um, these, these fellowships, you're learning about I guess I'm trying to understand how your experience as a self-identified queer Black woman comes to bear in this research that you did um, in Harlem and how that then shaped what the work that you're now doing at the New York Department of, of Public Health and Mental Hygiene. Yeah, so, no, yeah, like, I appreciate that question. So I think in terms of my identity as like a Black person first, um, that was something that was really cultivated by my parents. Like my sister and I went to a nursery school called Little Sun People. Like we have, you know, we have Nigeria, we both have Nigerian names, even though we are not, we don't know that if we're directly from Nigeria, but our parents were part of like this in the seventies, the Pan-African movement, um, sort of this return to our roots. Um, so like that has always been a big part of who I am. Um, and of course, I think being, uh, you know, cisgender, being a woman is a big part of it. I have to say my career identity, my path is like a little bit um, probably different and more of a later in life person in terms of coming out. So in my twenties, um, I realized that I was queer, um, but had so many different narratives like um, that was like coming at me that like that didn't really make sense um, that that wasn't sort of the expectations that my family and society had for me. Um, so I pushed a lot of that to the side. Um, I ended up getting married to a cisgender man um, and we had, you know, we have a beautiful son and um, I believe the universe really brought us together so that we could like create this little human being um, who was really fabulous. And um, sort of actually probably, actually over the past four or five years have really come more into myself and realizing who I am and self-identifying as queer is something that I just started doing in the last few years and actually exploring that aspect of my sexual identity. Um, so I had, and it's so funny, I remember looking online and looking this up in, about women, cisgender women in their late 30s and 40s. Apparently this is like very common. Once like the kids have gotten, have grown up a little bit, they're not like little anymore. When women have had like career changes, that, that is when they get more clarity on who they are. And apparently this is like not uncommon because I was like, this is so weird. Like so many people I know, like had this like very full awareness, like from when they, you know, were children, I mean, little, little itty bitties. Um, but for me, my path was, took a little bit more time. And I think because I was just so constrained by um, expectations, I grew up in a um, somewhere like Afro-Caribbean, like black American um, household and culture. I didn't see anyone who was queer. I, and I didn't see particularly queer women at all. My mom um, was, you know, really wonderful. And like, she, she like would take us every year to the Pride Parade. Hmm. Um, so, so like we, that was like our experience. 
but everyone like very close to us that I knew of was like straight identifying. And so like the idea of being queer, like didn't even, even in college, I had, had close friends, um, cisgender men who were queer, um, but I wasn't around any women. Um, and so as I started getting older and getting more exposed to um, folks who like I identified with, I was like, oh my goodness, like this is who I am. So in some ways I, 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 I do have some level of discomfort because I know people have had to live their whole lives as queer identified and mm. have dealt with that, um, the stigma and discrimination that comes with that. Um, and so for me, this is something that has appeared later in my life. Um, well, also, I, I, sorry to yeah. interrupt. I also, I also think for black people and, and particularly maybe black women, and it's not my lived experience, obviously, but I think you're always black first, right? You're always a black woman before yeah. you get to any queerness, as it were, yeah. right? No, totally. And what's really interesting is there's um, the survey that's done like every year in the United States. And so, and they've been seeing each year more and more people are self-identifying as queer, but the bulk of those people are cis women and most of those women are black women. All right. <laughs> which is like so interesting. So yeah. I think that there's like something I think happening in terms of like awareness and being in touch with who we are um, that's allowing more people to really be who they are and be able to identify that. Um, so that was like re re really interesting because I was like, oh my goodness, yes. And these are a lot of young, young queer women too, which is great. And so do you think that's informed this? Yes. Do you think your identity has informed your practice and your research? Yes, no, to totally. Like, it's so interesting because I think, especially when I started doing research, I saw there are folks who are like careerists, we call them. So like sort of like interested in the work in a way of like sort of advancing themselves as opposed to like having like your heart and your soul in the work. So like when I do my, my research is always about people who look like me, people who are like me in many ways. I have obviously privilege in having like a formal education in terms of like the income I have um, and some of the experience that I had. But um, my work is really about like impacting my community and making things better. So obviously being black, being woman, being queer, all of that definitely informs my work, um, impacts like what I'm interested in. Um, my ability to even like talk with um, you know, all of our community partners, I can identify with many of the experiences that they've had. Um, and there's some that I can't, um, and I'm, I have cultural humility about that aspect of things. Um, but yes, I, it, there's no way that it can't impact the work. And that's why I think it's so important. I think they've seen this in teaching where pr professors who've, whose identities sort of lie the intersection of multiple marginalized identities um, tend to actually are able to like connect with, men, with students much more because they, you just have like a different lens that you see the world through. Mm. Like you, um, there's actually this meditation that I do um, about black women. And it says, because we're at the intersection of all these identities, we're the most marginalized, we're, we're closer to God or, or the universe or whatever it is that people believe in. We're sort of closer to that because we can just see the world through a different lens. Do you think that's what you want to focus on more is, is at this particular intersection of blackness and otherness but not otherness yeah. in like a white supremacist way but the kind of because these intersections I've, I've found through busy are messy but generative right mm -hmm. there's so much there's so much potential in these spaces where people are so often overlooked totally yes yes and i think the challenge is to is doing that work in like institutions that are like enmeshed and rooted in 
a lot of these systems of oppression and privilege, right? Like, extent mm -hmm. to which we, so I've, I've tried to work to like advance some of this type of work, but I'm, I wonder sort of like, what are the other spaces in which I can do this and be, have much more freedom to do it? So one of the questions I wanted to ask more specifically today was about the historic drop in new HIV diagnoses that has really been led by you and your colleagues, right? This um, PrEP awareness among women, sex workers, transgender people, um, you equals you campaigning to let people know that if you're undetectable, you cannot pass the virus on, et cetera. But that that had to, the only way that could have happened is if the New York, if the, if the city began to take really seriously um, the problem impacting um, queer black and brown people in the city. And I'm curious to know, like, how was, can you recall a moment that precipitated that seriousness, that this focus on really reducing new HIV diagnoses um, in marginalized communities? Right, so yeah, and so I should first say, this is like a huge collective um, work and responsible body of work that's happening that involves many different people. And I've been fortunate to lead this work over the past two and a half years. Um, my my, my now supervisor, Dimitri Daskalakis, preceded me and did a lot of this wonderful work as well. And just to say, we could, we're, we're just sort of like the face of it. We have a whole team of 300 staff at the Bureau of HIV um, and at the New York City Health Department. And that is not to mention all of the community partners we have, you know, clinics, community-based agencies, the agencies that are on the front lines, um, you know, engaging with the communities that are most impacted. Honestly, they are really the unsung heroes of all of this. Um, and we are just in the privilege to really help to sort of set um, set the agenda in some ways, but they are doing, they are doing the work. Um, and we've seen really since the early 2000s actually. So this has been a really a progressive sure. decline um, in new HIV diagnoses. And I, I think for a number of reasons um, as compared to other parts of the, the states. And one of that is because, you know, because New York, New York um, has very generous Medicaid, you know, which is the public health insurance program um, for people who have lower incomes. So, and we have the expansion, the Affordable Care Act under President Barack Obama that also expanded who could be eligible for Medicaid and who could have other types of health insurance. So in your in New York, we have much higher insurance rates. And I know in um, England, this is like less of an issue because you have an, the NHS, but um, in other parts of the country, we have much higher um, uninsurance rates. Sure. Um, and we know that the uninsured tend to be disproportionately um, black and brown, disproportionately lower income. Uh, so the fact that we have uh, a safety net, we have a greater safety net here in New York. We also have the Ryan White Part A program um, that allows us to have the AIDS drug assistance program. So we have many, 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 we have very high rates of insurance among people living with HIV and among people who might be at risk, at high risk rate or placed at high risk, I like to say, for HIV. So I think that has led to these steady declines. You know, we've also had the opportunity to really invest in this work because in 2000. Uh, 15, 2016, we had um, the New York State set forth a blueprint to end the AIDS epidemic. And then our city, our city council invested like $20 million a year in ending the HIV epidemic. So we have not just federal funds, we have city funds going to do a lot of this work so we can have these really exciting, huge social marketing campaigns, like undetectable equals untransmittable, made equal campaign. Our, um, stay sure, play sure campaigns, all of those. Um, we had a living sure campaign for cis and trans women 
to raise awareness about PrEP. So we've been able to do a, a lot of that work. We've also been able to get PrEP to more and more people, um, which is great to start immediate treatment for HIV. So lots of great stuff we've been able to do, but because we've had a lot of city and federal um, support to do it and our community partners are really the ones implementing and doing this work. But there's an, there's, a, there's an acknowledgement at some level, yeah. right? Lo state, local, federal, yeah. that there's a disproportionate impact in certain communities. I guess I'm curious yeah. how, you know, people like you and the many people you work with, how you were able to make it clear to decision makers and funders that these were particular communities and areas to focus on. Right. No, you know, exactly. So, um, so we're fortunate, like, so the Centers for Disease Control, like they recognize that Black and Latino men who have sex with men, Black cisgender women, Black and Latina trans women are all disproportionately impacted by, by HIV. So a lot of, so for instance, we had um, funding, actually two funding projects, two demo projects from the CDC, one focused on Black and Latino men who have sex with men in Brooklyn, where we were able to support a number of agencies in engaging Black and Latino MSM in PrEP um, and post-exposure prophylaxis in treatment. We were able to create a community advisory board to help inform this work. Um, we had a similar demo project focused on just la Latino men who have sex with men, where we created a whole social marketing campaign focused on HIV treatment, um, PrEP, HIV testing for Latino MSM. And a lot of this is from like our, the, the CDC allows us to do this. And then we get input from our community partners about how best to implement um, this work. So it's helpful when there is recognition by leadership that these are the communities that are impacted. I, I think the challenge though is, is like, it's not like they're impacted out of the blue, right? It's not like, we don't know why, right? And it's not, and it's not about, what well, we've seen, it's not about necessarily individual behavior. Because when we, um, look at um for instance sexual behaviors or drug use behaviors among black and latino men who have sex with men compared to white msm we actually see behaviors much less frequent and lower risk behaviors among black and latino msm compared to white msm fewer partners less um condomless sex all of that but it's it's all of the structural factors right the poverty the lack of access to quality health care the um well, there's stigma in, in both for both for, for all groups, um, but we see a lot of the you know higher rates of incarceration. But all of these drive the HIV risk among Latin, Black and Latino MSM. And so, really interesting. While we've seen these really amazing declines in new HIV diagnoses, it's not the gains are not the same among all groups. So mm. we saw from like 2017 to 2018 in New York City, HIV diagnoses among white MSM dropped about 34 percent. And it was like a single digit decline among black MSM. That was true here too. Okay, so there was the same thing? <clears throat> Absolutely, and um, I was working in sexual health um, when the Public Health England released these, this was trumpeting about, you know, a, a, um, an historic drop in new HIV diagnoses. And I obviously read the report because I'm one of those people. And um, I was like, ah, but this drop isn't as significant. Um, among black men who have sex with men. And people weren't talking about the the disparity or the inequity in those drops either. Right. But at the same yeah. time, these kind of official public agencies were saying that black communities were super hard to reach. Right. And so that's another, right. So we always say like, it's not about hard to reach. It's like hardly reached. Like people, you can reach people. Mm. Um, you just have to know how to do it. Um, but yeah, so right. So, and so what I saw like with that, you know, the greater gains in terms of decline in new diagnoses among white men, 
I attribute it to that. Like, that's what it looks like when you have access to prep. <laughs> like you have like, right. you don't have to worry about all the other stuff that's getting in the way, the racism, you know, the, the unemployment. That's when you can just like focus on taking a prevention medication, accessing healthcare. But when there's so many other layers, so many other structural factors that get in the way of you being, like if you're worried more about housing, um, then, then taking prep. Um, if you're worried about getting a job, if you have to meet with your parole officer and miss your your HIV appointment, whatever it is, like that is the stuff that gets in the way of people being able to take care of themselves. And that is what Black and Brown men and women are having to deal with. And so, it, it's not a one size it's not a one size fits all in terms of how do we intervene. It's not just about a pill, right? It's mm -hmm. about how do we also support folks in all of these other ways. And it's about like changing policies, like, you know, at the state and federal level, which can be really, feel really big and really challenging. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And I suppose this is where these community organizations then really come in, right? Because they are the ones, you know, because if you, ima I imagine that being in this, in the world that you and your colleagues are in um, at the state level, uh, sorry, at the city level, um, trying to decide how to spend these, how to spend this money and with whom and how to make it most effective. And those community groups, I imagine, then become really important. Totally. Yes. Yeah. So we have um, a suite of different programs that we support, but one of them that I'm really proud of is supporting we had a program that supported Black MSM-led organizations um, to build their um, organizational capacity and their ability to um, provide different services. Um, and then we also do have a similar initiative supporting trans-led organizations as well, because you know these organizations are really at the front lines, able and not just at the front lines, but they can employ Black and Brown MSM and trans folks, um, so giving job opportunities you know, raising people out of poverty. Um, and then they're also able to like engage in a culturally sensitive and responsive way with the communities um, that they serve. So that's some of the work that like, I'm, I'm really excited about that we do um, that I think makes an impact, like not immediately, but if but these organizations are helping, you know, with housing, with employment, with case management, with all of that stuff. So um, that's, 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 you know, it's, it's encouraging. Um, but you know, we're only, we can only do so much. Like sure. they're also just like a lot of other issues that make this work challenging. I think I was really impressed. I, I was just one impressed by the figures. Right. And then I, and that got to thinking about how a city like New York that I guess really historically has been built upon, um, blackness right and in black mm -hmm. culture and and black people form such an important part of the culture of new york city and and indeed um, more broadly and that i felt like the city was taking its black citizens lives very seriously mm -hmm. and it's something that i i don't know i don't know if it's as widespread as it ought to be right this this yeah you know, I agree. You know, we were very fortunate at the New York City Health Department um, back in 2016. Our commissioner at the time, her name was Dr. Mary Bassett. Um, she's a self-identified Black woman. She started an initiative called Race to Justice, 
which really brought um, sort of the impact of racism on health outcomes to the fore and like normal helped to normalize discussions around racism in our health department and really got us working in so many different ways on equity both within the health department because we're not immune from all of these issues as well as the work we're doing out in the community and so for instance, like some of the work that we do in my bureau is looking at like, who do we give our fund? We get millions of dollars from the federal government and the city government. Who do the funds go to? Are the funds going to the organizations that are that are led by people who look like those impacted by the epidemic? And so we've started looking at those questions and, and trying to, to think about the way that we're doing our, it's called a request for proposals process, but the way that we are able to get people to apply, the way that we're scoring, can we can we give extra points to folks who have organizations that are led by Black and Latino MSM or by trans women? Like these are the organizations that we want to reach where the leadership reflects the communities. Um, and so that's some of the work that we're doing. And how much of this is a trust building exercise? There, there will naturally be people who are mistrustful of the city, right? The more broadly. And so I wonder how much of this work and this funding and this community outreach is requires a trust, right? A trust building that it can only happen with effective leadership like yours. Totally. Yes. And I, and I've been um, the beneficiary of, you know, people who preceded me and my current team who've done a lot of this community building. So we have a, an organ, we have an, uh, an effort called New York knows, um, which started um, back in 2010, when community leaders in the Bronx came to the health department and said, we wanna start an HIV testing, a borough-wide HIV testing initiative. Um, and so that was, you know, it was a coalition of community-based organizations, hospitals, businesses that came to the health department and the health department provided resources to make this happen. And that has grown to a whole, it's called New York Knows initiative um, where we have these relationships over a decade with organizations all over the city around not just HIV testing, but prevention and treatment. And actually at, at noon giving them a webinar for our New York Nose partners, but we've really cultivated these relationships over time. We have a woman's advisory board that um, does something similar. So we have lots of ways that we, we have a, lots of community advisory boards, um, mm. something called the HIV prevention group. We also have the planning council. All of these are, are groups that allow us to really work in a collaborative, synergistic way um, with um, community members, with stakeholders. That, that is like the foundation of what we do, is mm -hmm. that we need to have those relationships. We need to have that trust. You know, when people email, I like make sure I email them back. Like, Dr. Blackstock, I heard you got this funding. What are you doing with it? And, and to be as transparent as possible with what we're doing. Um, there's a... It, we're, you know, we're in the midst of the COVID-19 crisis, and there are naturally yeah. comparisons between um, the HIV epidemic and COVID-19. I obviously have my reservations about such comparisons, because I think a lot of the comparisons we've seen suggest that the HIV epidemic is, is over. Um, and I think it's not. What if there are comparisons to make between... COVID-19 and the HIV and the ongoing HIV crisis. What do you think they are? So I think one is um, so looking at government response, thinking about the federal government response and maybe the, the response of some states, sort of an inadequate response to like the urgency of addressing this. I think as hope has parallels to um, during the AIDS epidemic in terms of the lack of response from President Reagan in addressing and speaking out about the AIDS crisis and doing what was needed in terms of establishing public health 
the appropriate public health interventions um, to stem the tide. So I think that is similar. Um, I think also what we're seeing in terms of the, the groups that are being impacted as well. Um, it's interesting, I was um, looking at data from a, a colleague who works at AMFAR, his name is Greg Millett. He, he released this really, really, really um, profound and powerful analysis a day or two ago which showed um, the disproportionate impact of the, of the COVID-19 pandemic on black communities. And one thing that he noted was that as time went on, literally days and weeks, you could see like the, the lines for like um, black communities and non-black communities like being impacted, like widening where black community, the disparity was widening and is widening as the pandemic progresses. And this is something that's very similar to what we see here, at least in terms of the HIV epidemic, it's not as rapid, of course, but over time, you know, now about 80% um, of men and 90% of women, cis and trans women and cis and trans men in New York City who are diagnosed with, newly diagnosed with HIV are black and brown. That's very different from the start of the epidemic. So we're seeing these increasingly stark disparities as time goes on. And that's really about like, you know, right, access to, to the prevention treatment. We can't, you know, for COVID-19, you know, um, if most black and brown people are frontline workers, they, and they're essential, they have to work. So they, and they can't, and they're not able to protect themselves in the same way as we have people in more white affluent communities here who are able to leave the city and go upstate or go to their homes mm -hmm. elsewhere and to socially distance or to work from home. We know that more white people are able to work from home than black and brown people. So all of these things, I think there's so many parallels sure. in terms of um, HIV and epidemic and COVID-19, and I agree with you, um, we're still dealing with, with HIV. Um, we're seeing it's, you know, obviously impacting black and brown people more. And in other parts of the world, um, this pandemic, COVID-19 pandemic, has the potential to, 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 um, to go back on the declines that we've seen and start seeing increases in HIV, as well as a number of other infectious diseases. I mean, we're beginning to see here the government loosely acknowledge that Black and minority ethnic communities are disproportionately impacted by COVID-19. Um, but it seems that so much of this conversation about health disparities still relies on some form of victim blaming, right? And the perhaps the comparison between HIV and COVID-19 is that both viruses um, take advantage of structural inequalities and vulnerabilities, right? Right, exactly, exactly. Um, Black feminist researcher Jade Bentel said just this morning on Twitter, oh, okay. um, she, isn't she great? I follow her. I follow her. I love her. <laughs> She's too. amazing. Um, we need to be careful not to buy into white supremacist myths when speaking about the close proximity to death that shapes black life. Black people in Britain are not dying at four times the rate of white people because of our diets. We are dying at four times the rate because of anti-blackness. And so I guess I'm curious about how structural inequalities, racism, discrimination, et cetera, have informed your work and how you and your colleagues raise awareness around these inequities, inequalities inside. Yes, yeah, no, no, totally. And I just wanted to speak to the, the um, tweet from Jade is that, you know, we even recently saw like the Surgeon General here in the United States um, oh, yeah. talk about <laughs> Black and Latino people and our diets and the alcohol for, and all of you, that. For your mama not, or big mama or something? <laughs> you're, still, your abuela. You're, I mean, it's almost like laughable if it wasn't like affecting people's lives, right? And leading to death. So, um, you know, that's a big part of, you know, the, the messaging here as well, that it's about individual behaviors as opposed to these structural um Factors And so we try to, in, in the work that we do at the health department, to the extent that we can, 
you know, try to adjust these social determinants of health. So when people come into like our sexual health clinics, we also, try, you know, have social workers there who can help with with housing and with getting, you know, maybe people connected with a community-based organization that can help with employment. And so I think we, we, we recognize this. I think the reality is like, you know, our ability to really um, not just address or like mitigate some of these larger factors, but to eliminate them, it feels mm. somewhat limited, right? Um, but it's something that we are trying to think explicitly about in all of the work that we do and when we're providing services as well. Um, but it can be, it can be, um, it can be challenging. I think even in terms of like the language that we use, you know, in a lot of, um, you know, when we would create these requests for proposals that we were asking community-based agencies to apply for funds, we would talk about these inequities that exist, but we didn't like say explicitly like why. And so under my leadership, I was like, we need to say racism in this document. We need to see right. transphobia. We need to say homophobia. We need to explicitly state what are the systems of oppression, the systems of power and privilege that are leading to these inequities that we are asking these community-based organizations to intervene on and to mitigate. So those are some of the ways, and I know it's, it's, it's not obviously the same as being able to like change um, policies broadly, but we do have um, a policy arm that can also help out, um, can help advocate at the state and federal level for legislation that can help to at least minimize some of the disparities that we see. In the work that you all can do and the work that you all lead, it sounds like you've made a commitment to name and try and redress where you can. Yes, yes, but very much so. And I think it's hard to ignore that when you have like 80 to 90 percent right. of like new HIV diagnoses being black and brown people and to not explicitly call that out and to not take action on that. So, well, you know, a lot of our- surprised yes. because here, you know, um, as of, I think 2018, you know, when, when I last saw this data, um, something like 59% of late diagnosis, there was a, sorry, 59% of all late diagnoses were black African heterosexual men. Wow. And there, there didn't appear to be any ring-fenced funding or targeted campaigns or community outreach programs to try and get that number down. And so people were, and this is part of the reason I wanted to do Theory in the Flesh, was that like, we, can t we should absolutely talk about and celebrate um, drops in new HIV diagnoses. Of course, that's immense, but that's really only among one group of people. How are we going to tackle um, the HIV crisis that's, that continues to rage, if that's not too dramatic, among Black people, heterosexual and otherwise. Yes, and this has, has to be called out. It has to be called out. And I, you know, we're trying to do that. Um, mm -hmm. And I think when we hear from community, it makes it easier. We also need to have like our white colleagues who have been really many of them have been activists and at the front lines and have the ear of a lot of different like policymakers. We need to also have them like step aside and let the voices of black and brown people be heard, right? Like, so, um, you know, I get a lot of folks who reach out to me and I always wanna make sure that we are listening to the folks who are, the, who are placed at risk and who are the most vulnerable and the most likely to be impacted. And we, we, must, we must hear their voices and their voices must be amplified. Have you seen effective grassroots advocacy throughout your career, researching or otherwise, um, that you think has been really effective in making people take note of queer Black people in the city and, and the particular disparities that impact us? There, there are a lot of folks, I was actually on a call 
two days ago when this data from AMFAR was released with a lot of um, Black, with all Black people, all who are advocates throughout the country. And it was, it was specifically HIV advocates, many who are, who are queer. Um, and, we, and we were being presented with that COVID-19 data from AMFAR that I was talking about. And as we were talking about, um, you know, this, this stark data that looked really bleak, you know, eventually the conversation went to collective action, like mobilizing, what are we going to do? And the reality is like, we cannot wait for other people to help us, right? Like we have to help ourselves. And so I think like the work that has probably been most successful has been when we have, we have sought to help ourselves. So I think when I think about like some of the, the organizations that we have worked with, um, I think about like Destination Tomorrow, which is um, led by um, someone who's a, Sean Coleman, who's a trans man, you know, the, the impact that his organization has had on trans people and trans Latin, Latinx network, which is run by Christina Herrera, who's a trans Latina here in New York City, like their work has been most impactful um, because they, they know what their communities need. Um, and they are able to speak to that, to, to sort of garner the attention needed um, and to then put um, words into action. And so like they, I mean, they have done like amazing work in terms of developing leadership academies, in terms of providing services to these communities. So I, I think ultimately when we put resources into the hands of the communities that are impacted, they know what to do and they've helped themselves. Like they have figured it out themselves. And so, I think they, you know, we have the solutions, um, but it's all really about like they're having the resources to do so. When you're up against it, when you've had a crazy few weeks or a particularly difficult day, what keeps you going? Well, um, I think what I've tried to be, to do, especially during this pandemic, is to really just stay in the present, like because the because there's so much uncertainty in the future. Mm. Um, and there's really no sense in longing about the past or what was, because that was the past. Uh, so I've been trying to, through meditation, through um, the contemplative practice, through movement practice, really trying to like, just be like, the current is all I know. I'm, I'm staying here. Uh, and so that has been like really helpful um, because there's so much that we could imagine. Like even tomorrow, what does tomorrow bring? It, it's so different. And I think also it's, helped me realize that no thinking we knew the future was always an illusion we never knew what the future was right yes, yes. <laughs> like and yeah. so this is just showing us like sort of magnifying that but like I, you know we, there's so many different plans we had to we had but none of that was ever certain or definitive um so i've just been trying to like focus a lot i have to say yesterday i did snap on my seven-year-old i kind of and i lost it but i also like was like self-compassion is really important and I was like, Oni, and I was like, Oni, it's okay. You know, for next time you, you can do things differently. Um, maybe go into a different room, you know, take a deep breath, whatever it is. So having self-compassion is also, I think, a big part of this as well. Realizing that we're all dealing with a, a serious and continuing trauma. To close, I ask all of my guests the same question. What do you hope for? And I know that you've just said <laughs> about the future. <laughs> Um, but I think the question still stands. What do you hope for? Equity is constantly on my mind. Um, and I do hope that this moment we're in provides 
an opportunity to think about how we want to do things differently in the future. And I know people have said that a lot. Um, and I have to say, I'm not so optimistic. Um, but I do hope like things like mutual aid networks. So the way that we, the generosity that we're seeing, the way that we're seeing people come together collectively to support their communities, like that we should always have that, that sort of mindset and that approach, not just when we were, we were in the midst of a pandemic. So I hope some of the generosity that we're seeing, the generosity of spirit, um, the altruism, um, the helping ourselves, I, I hope to see that continue as, as we move on. Dr. Oni Blackstock is the Assistant Commissioner for the Bureau of HIV at New York City's Department of Health. In 2019, she was recognized in Out Magazine's Out 100 list for her work raising awareness of U equals U, undetectable equals untransmittable. In the show notes, you'll find links to her work. Before you go, if you have enjoyed Theory in the Flesh, please head to podcastviews.com and let us know what you thought. It is so important as part of this funding that there is feedback from my listeners, and I would be so immensely grateful if you could take a few minutes to fill out the anonymous and data-protected survey. Please head to podcastviews.com. Busy Being Black is the podcast exploring how we live in the fullness of our queer black lives. Thank you to our partners, UK Black Pride and Blackout UK, and to you, the listeners. Remember this, your support doesn't cost any money. Retweets, shares, ratings, and reviews all help, so please keep the support coming. Finally, thank you to Anthony Giles, a queer black Grammy-nominated producer based in New York City, for these bomb-ass Busy Being Black beats. Ashe. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.